This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the True Crime Truckers podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. You are not guilty. I'm not guilty. (laughs) Does that that include the time I stole a comic book when I was five years old? (laughs) I'm not guilty of the charges which have been filed against me. And the allegations? And the allegations? the rumors and the... (laughs) I don't know all of what you're speaking about, Lucky. It's too broad and I can't get into it in any detail. Uh, But I'm satisfied with, with my blanket statement that I'm innocent. Uh, no man is truly innocent. Uh, I mean, we all have transgressed in some way in our lives. And as I say, I, I've been uh, impolite, and uh, there are things I regret having done in my life. Uh, but nothing like the, the things I think that you're referring to. There is no consensus on when or where Bundy began killing women. He told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. He told Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but he did not kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Philadelphia. He hinted but refused to elaborate to homicide detective Robert D. Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater. Rule and Keppel both believed that he might have started killing as a teenager. 
Circumstantial evidence suggests that he may have abducted and killed 8-year-old Anne Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was 14 years old in 1961, an allegation that he repeatedly denied. His earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. By then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills in the era before DNA profiling to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at a crime scene. Shortly after midnight on January 4, 1974, Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a dancer and a student at UW. After bludgeoning the sleeping woman senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, a UW undergraduate who broadcast morning radio weather reports for skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans and a white blouse and boots, and carried her away. During the first half of 1974, female college students disappeared at the rate of about one per month. On March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her dormitory to attend a jazz concert on campus, but never arrived. On April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way to her dorm room after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, 110 miles east-southeast of Seattle. Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of Rancourt's disappearance, the other three nights earlier, with a man wearing an arm sling asking them for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University in Corvallis, 85 miles south of Portland, to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but never arrived. Detectives from the King County and Seattle Police Department grew increasingly concerned. There was no significant physical evidence, and the missing women had little in common apart from being young, attractive, white college students with long hair parted in the middle. On June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. In the early hours of June 11th, UW student Georgiana Hawkins vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory residence and her sorority house. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and a criminalist combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. Georgiana Hawkins was last seen Monday evening shortly after midnight. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing the man that night who was in the alley behind the nearby dormitory. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that the man asked her for help to carry the case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. 
During this period, Bundy was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Later, he worked at the Department of Energy Services, a state government agency involved in the search for the missing women. At DES, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two who six years later would play an important role in the final phase of his life. Reports of the six missing women and Sparks' brutal beating appeared prominently in the newspapers and on television throughout Washington and Oregon. Fear spread among the population. Hitchhiking by young women dropped sharply. Pressure mounted on law enforcement agencies, but the paucity of physical evidence severely hampered them. Police could not provide reporters with the little information that was available for fear of compromising the investigation. Further, similarities between the victims were noted. The disappearances all took place at night, usually near ongoing construction work, within a week of the midterm or final exams. All the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans, and at most crime scenes there were sightings of a man wearing a cast or a sling and driving a brown or a tan Volkswagen Beetle. Pacific Northwest murders culminated on July 14th with the broad daylight abductions of two women from the crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, a suburb 20 miles east of Seattle. Five female witnesses described an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling, speaking with a light accent, perhaps Canadian or British. Introducing himself as Ted, he asked their help in unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze-colored Volkswagen Beetle. Four refused, and one accompanied him as far as the car, saw that there was no sailboat, and fled. Three additional witnesses saw him approach Janice Ann Ott, 23, a probation caseworker at the King County Juvenile Court with the sailboat story, and watched her leave the beach in his company. About four hours later, Denise Marie Nosland, a 19-year-old woman who was studying to become a computer programmer, left a picnic to go to the restroom and never returned. Bundy told Stephen Micklin and William Hagmeyer that Ott was still alive when he returned with Nosland, and that he forced one to watch as he murdered the other, but he later denied it in an interview with Lewis on the eve of his execution.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. King County Police, finally armed with a detailed description of their suspect and his car, posted flyers throughout the Seattle area. A composite sketch was printed on a regional newspaper and broadcast on local television stations. Elizabeth Kleffler, Ann Rule, a DES employee, and a UW psychology professor all recognized the profile, the sketch, and the car, and reported Bundy as a possible suspect, but detectives, who were receiving up to 200 tips per day, thought it unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. On September 6, two grouse hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of Ott and Noslin, near the service road in Issaquah, two miles east of Lake Sammamish State Park. An extra femur and several vertebrae found at the site were later identified by Bundy as Georgiana Hawkins. Six months later, forestry students from Green River Community College discovered the skulls and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy frequently hiked just east of Issaquah. Manson's remains were never recovered. The word is that both you and Seattle police are proceeding on the assumption that there are more bodies out here, that perhaps maybe even all of the girls might be here. Is that a heroic assumption? Well, that probably is. In August of 1974, Bundy received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Kleffler in Seattle. While he called Kleffler often, he dated at least a dozen other women. When he studied the first-year law curriculum a second time, quote, he was devastated to find out that the other students had something, some intellectual capacity that he did not. He found the classes completely incomprehensible. It was a great disappointment to me, unquote, he said. A new string of homicides began the following month, including two that would remain undiscovered until Bundy confessed to them shortly before his execution. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, then either disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. On October 2nd, he sees 16-year-old Nancy Wilcock in Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City. Her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles south of Holiday, but were never found. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her nude body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Postmortem examination indicated that she may have remained alive up to seven days following her disappearance. On October 31st, Laura Ann Amy, also 17, disappeared 25 miles south of Lehigh, after leaving a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body was found by hikers nine miles to the northeast in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. Both women had been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. 
Years later, Bundy described his post-mortem rituals with the corpses of Smith and Amy, including hair shampooing and application of makeup. In the late afternoon of November 8th, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Durange at a Fashion Place mall in Murray, less than a mile from the Midvale restaurant where Melissa Smith was last seen. He identified himself as, quote, Officer Roseland of the Murray Police Department and told Durange that someone had attempted to break into her car. He asked her to accompany him to the station to file a complaint. When Durant pointed out to Bundy that he was driving on the road that did not lead to the police station, he immediately pulled to the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. During their struggle, he inadvertently fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist, and Durant was able to open the car door and escape. A man approached me and said, Is your license plate KAD 032? And I said yes, and he introduced himself as Officer Roseland. And he said that someone had been caught trying to break into my car. I told him there was nothing missing, and he asked me if I would come with him um, over to the substation because they were holding the man that had tried to break into my car. I asked him at that time if I could see a, a badge or some kind of identification, and he promptly just flipped out his wallet and showed me a badge. I thought it was a little strange, but I just thought, you know, maybe he's off-duty, um, undercover. It occurred to me, you know, he, that he wasn't who he said he was and that something really bad was going to happen. And he grabbed my wrist and, and put a handcuff on my left wrist. I, I knew he was going to kill me. And I, you know, I thought, no one's ever going to know what happened to me. Fought outside the car, and I finally just broke away, and the car started coming towards us. So I broke away and ran towards the car. I just knew it was the same person. He, the, this person immediately drove away from me and had to find another victim. I think that was probably my first reaction. Just I was very lucky. Later that evening, Deborah Jean Kent, a 17-year-old student at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, 20 miles north of Murray, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school to pick up her brother. The school's drama teacher and the student told the police that a stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing in the rear of the auditorium and the drama teacher spotted him again shortly before the end of the play. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Carol Durancha's wrists. In November, Elizabeth Kleffler called King County Police a second time after reading that young women were disappearing in the towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hirschmeyer of the Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Bundy had risen considerably on the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the Lake Sammamish witnesses considered most reliable by detectives failed to identify him from a photo lineup. In December, Kleffler called the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was added to their list of suspects, but at that time no credible forensic evidence linked him to the Utah crimes. 
In January of 1975, Bundy returned to Seattle after final exams and spent a week with Kleffler, who did not tell him that she had reported him to the police on three separate occasions. She made plans to visit him in Salt Lake City in August. In 1975, Bundy shifted much of his criminal activities eastward, from his base in Utah to Colorado. On January 12th, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Carolyn Eileen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, 400 miles southeast of Salt Lake City. Her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road just outside the resort. She had been killed by blows to the head from a blunt instrument that left distinctive linear groove depressions on her skull. Her body also bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. On March 15th, 100 miles northeast of Snowmass, Vail ski instructor Julie Cunningham, 26, disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. Bundy later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help him carry his ski boots to his car, where he clubbed and handcuffed her then assaulted and strangled her at a secondary site near Rifle, 90 miles west of Vail. Weeks later, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to revisit her remains. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found under a viaduct near a railroad bridge. On May 6th, Bundy lured 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho, 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. He drowned and sexually assaulted her in his hotel room before disposing of her body in a river north of Pocatello. In mid-May, three of Bundy's Washington State DES co-workers, including Carol Ann Boone, visited him in Salt Lake City and stayed for a week in his apartment. Bundy subsequently spent a week in Seattle with Kleffler in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Again, Kleffler made no mention of her multiple discussions with the King County Police and Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. Bundy disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Boone nor a concurrent romance with a Utah law student known in various accounts as Kim Andrews. On June 28th, Suzanne Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo, 45 miles south of Salt Lake City. Curtis's murder became Bundy's last confession, tape recorded moments before he entered the execution chamber. The bodies of Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Oliverson, Culliver, and Curtis were never recovered. In August or September of 1975, Bundy was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although he was not an active participant in services and ignored most church restrictions, he would later be excommunicated by the LDS Church following his 1976 kidnapping conviction. When asked his religious preference after his arrest, Bundy answered Methodist, the religion of his childhood. In Washington State, investigators were still struggling to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that had ended as abruptly as it had begun. In an effort to make sense of an overwhelming mass of data, they resorted to the then-innovative strategy of compiling a database. They used the King County Payroll Computer, 
a huge primitive machine by contemporary standards, but the only one available for their use. After inputting the many lists they had compiled, classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders, and so on, they queried the computer for coincidences. Out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on four separate lists. One of them was Ted Bundy. Detectives also manually complied a list of their 100 best suspects, and Bundy was on that list as well. He was, quote, literally at the top of the pile of suspects, unquote, when the word came from Utah of his arrest. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash true crime truckers slash there you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the age of radio syndicate also if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker go to www.patreon.com slash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.